And let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And we're going to focus on verses 5 through 9 this morning. Romans 14, 5 through 9. The previous paragraph was about food, and today's paragraph is about holy days. So, some interesting topics the Apostle Paul is writing about in this part of the letter. Remember, he's writing to the Christians in Rome in the first century AD, to the church there, which included both Jews and Gentiles, as many of the churches did at that time, Jews who who had become Christians and Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. And like we saw last time, Paul's teaching them how to love each other when they disagree. How to love each other when they disagree with each other. A lesson we all need to continually learn and apply with God's help. And he has already said some things to them about disagreements they've had regarding food, about whether or not one should observe the Old Testament food laws about certain foods being unclean. And he told them, when you disagree on the observance of Old Testament food laws, you should welcome each other anyway. You shouldn't argue with one another. You shouldn't pass judgment on one another. Remember what he said last time. That's how to love one another when you disagree on that matter. Well, now he's gonna tell them that they should do the same when they disagree about holy days, about whether or not one should observe those Old Testament ceremonial days like Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and all the holy days that surrounded all the feasts in the Old Testament. He tells them, when you disagree on the observance of those Old Testament ceremonial days, like I already said, you should welcome each other anyway, not quarrel or despise or pass judgment on each other. And, and this is really the focus of our passage this morning, he's saying, you should recognize that as Christians, we're all seeking to honor the Lord in these matters and give thanks to God in our observance or non-observance of these ceremonial days that were fulfilled in Christ and were passing away during this transitional period in the early church. We're all seeking to live to the Lord and die to the Lord who lived and died and rose again for us. And recognizing that, he's saying, recognizing that we're all seeking to do that should put these disagreements over secondary matters into perspective and should help you to love each other in the midst of them. That's what Paul's saying to them in this paragraph. When you disagree about holy days, just like when you disagree about foods, you should love each other anyway and recognize that we're all seeking to honor the Lord and live for the Lord. So we're gonna try to understand and apply that message to our own hearts this morning. And be reminded again of the call to live and die for Christ in light of the fact that he lived and died and rose again for us. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us and then we'll begin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this portion of your word that we come to this morning in your providence Thank you for all the truths you've communicated to us in it through the Apostle Paul. We pray now that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to those truths and help us to understand how to apply them 
to our hearts, how to apply them to our lives. We don't want these things we hear to go in one ear and out the other. We want them to get into our minds and go down into our hearts. We want these truths to bear fruit in our lives for your glory and for the good of others. So would you help us now by the power of your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 14, reading verses five through nine. This is God's word. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. As you can see in your sermon notes there, we're going to look first at what verse 5 says about holy days, then honoring the Lord in verse 6, and finally living and dying to the Lord in verses 7 through 9. So first, holy days. Paul says again in verse 5 that one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. What's going on here? Well, the person who esteems one day as better than another in context is the person who is weak in faith and they esteem or consider or observe one day as being better than another day. And here Paul's referring to the holy days that were part of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. Not the Sabbath day, which was a creational ordinance, but the holy days that were ceremonial ordinances, days like Passover, as I said, and all the feasts, feast of unleavened bread and so on. Those who were weak in faith esteemed those days as better than the other days, while the strong in faith esteemed all days alike, Paul says, meaning they did not consider those holy days to be better than other days. Even though God commanded his people to observe these days before the coming of Christ, now that it was after the coming of Christ who fulfilled the ceremonial law, the strong in faith understood that all those holy days, except the Sabbath, again, which was creational, not ceremonial, and part of the Ten Commandments, they understood that all those holy days were now just like the other days, and in that sense, they esteemed all days alike. So in the previous paragraph, the weak in faith were observing the Old Testament food laws, and in our paragraph, they're observing the Old Testament holy days. But both were fulfilled in Christ and were passing away during this transitional period in the early church, and the strong in faith understood that. And so they ate everything regarding the foods, and they esteemed all days alike regarding the holy days issue. And really what Paul's doing in in this verse is he's simply highlighting that. 
He's just underscoring the fact that one person does one thing and another does another. And then he says at the end of the verse, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That is, each person should be fully persuaded. Each person should be thoroughly confident that whatever he's doing, he's doing it in honor of the Lord, as he goes on to say in the next verse. Paul's saying that each person should follow his or her biblically informed conscience on these matters or consciousness of what will honor God on these matters. One person has one view and another has another view and each one should be convinced of his view in his own mind. Now, let me pause for a minute here and in light of what Paul's saying in verse five, let me address the question does this verse have any, anything to say about days like Christmas or Easter and the whole subject of the liturgical calendar and our observance or non-observance of it based on our views? One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. It certainly sounds like it, but does it have anything to say about how we should think about days like Christmas and Easter? And let me just say, as I enter into this few minutes of the sermon, that I know this can be a bit of a sensitive topic, but I think we'd all agree it's an important one, and so it's important for us to consider for a minute in light of this verse. Does this verse have anything to say about holidays like Christmas and Easter? And I would say, as maybe you anticipate me to say, yes and no. Yes and no. First of all, no, not directly, because Paul's talking about days that God had commanded his people to observe in the Old Testament. Whereas days like Christmas and Easter are actually not commanded by God in the Bible. The incarnation is in the Bible. The resurrection is in the Bible gloriously. But special days like Christmas and Easter or special seasons like Advent or, or Lent or so on are not in the Bible. So the days in verse five are a God-given law, whereas Christmas and Easter are man-made traditions. And I'm not meaning to disparage those holidays by referring to them as man-made traditions. I'm just making the point that Paul's talking here about God-ordained days, not man-made days. Christmas and Easter and all the other elements of the liturgical calendar, Advent, Lent, Good Friday, etc., those actually don't come from the Bible, they come from church tradition. Again, the truths that they're meant to celebrate, like the incarnation and the resurrection, those are in the Bible, but having special days and seasons when we celebrate them, that doesn't come from the Bible, that comes from church tradition. That's one of the reasons we don't follow the liturgical calendar in our worship services. The calendar God has given us in his word is in the new covenant, is not an annual calendar, but a weekly calendar, right? Six days of work and one day of rest and worship. Now Sunday, the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath. So the only holy day in the new covenant is the Lord's day and all the other days are alike. So Paul's talking about the God-ordained days under the old covenant here, not man-made days. So when he says one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike, he's not talking about one person who celebrates Christmas and another who doesn't. 
So no, in that sense, I would say this verse doesn't have to do with days like Christmas and Easter. However, there's a bit of a yes here too, in this sense. Though the days in this verse are the holy days of the Old Testament ceremonial law and not the special days of the liturgical calendar which were added after scripture was complete in the history of the church. I do think the principle in this verse has something to say about this issue. The principle is that one person has one view and another has another and each one should be convinced in his own mind about his view and seek to honor the Lord and to give thanks to God in his view and practice. And we should all recognize that regardless of our view, that's what we're all trying to do. We're all seeking to honor Christ in the way we think about these days. Much like these early Christians were all trying to honor Christ in the way they thought about the holy days that were part of the Old Testament ceremonial law. So with regard to Advent and Christmas and Easter here at CRPC, even though we don't observe those days and seasons here in corporate worship, it's okay if you don't agree with that. It's okay if you don't agree with that, that view or that practice or, or if that's not your preference. And I recognize that that might make it difficult for you during the month of December, say, or on Easter Sunday, perhaps. And I appreciate that. I understand that, I get it, I really do. But let me just say this, don't forget that when you come to worship on those Sundays and on every Sunday, you can know that you're gonna be able to worship the triune God with his people through the means of grace that he has so graciously given us. And if we believe in the sufficiency of scripture, and we do, you can know that scripture will be sufficient for you on those days. Whatever passages we come to, whatever hymns and psalms we sing on those days. And even if it's hard, you can trust the Lord to help you as you seek to worship him, as you seek to focus on him. You can trust that it's okay that we're not following a man-made liturgical calendar because the calendar God's given us in his word is sufficient for us. You can trust that you're not missing out if you're showing up for the meal he's provided for us on that day. The meal he will give us is sufficient and we don't need to add anything to it. You can take comfort in that realization even if it's hard, even if you disagree with our non-observance. And also, just a few other things, just to be clear, it's okay to celebrate Christmas in your home. We're talking about corporate worship here when I say these things. It's okay to celebrate Christmas in your home. It's okay to say Merry Christmas to each other when you're here. It's okay if you really like listening to incarnation hymns during the month of December. It's okay to go to a Christmas concert if you want. One person has one view and another has another and we're all seeking to honor Christ in our views and practices. So in that sense, I think there is a principle here that applies to how we think about this issue of the liturgical calendar. And if we take that principle to heart and put it into practice together, I think we'll love each other and treat each other well 
even when we disagree on this issue. So that's about holy days in verse five. Let's look at what verse six says about honoring the Lord in the observance or non-observance of holy days. This is our second main point now, honoring the Lord. Look at verse six. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So those who observe the holy days and observe the food laws seek to do so in honor of the Lord, while those who don't observe the food laws or the holy days are also seeking to honor the Lord. And both are seeking to give thanks to God as they carry out their respective practices. And Paul points that out in order to help these believers to treat each other well when they disagree. And I think there are two things we can take away from this in terms of our own lives as Christians today. And the first is to think what is best about each other. To think what is best about each other. If you have a disagreement with a fellow church member, over the church calendar issue perhaps like we were just talking about or over schooling options for your kids and the best way to think about that or who to vote for in an upcoming election or some other kind of important but secondary issue. It's sadly all too easy for us to think the worst about each other. Satan loves to sow seeds of division Our own sinful flesh loves to be right. And so it's easy to demonize the other guy or gal. It's easy to assume the worst about them. But what does God call us to do? God calls us to think what is best about each other in the body of Christ. God calls us to remember that the other person is also presumably seeking to honor the Lord in whatever their view is. They're seeking to honor Christ too. They're seeking to give thanks to God too in the choice they've made, just like you are. And if you keep that in mind, that'll put things into perspective for you. That'll shine some light into that dark room of your current view of the other person. I think that'll help us to be more charitable towards our fellow church members we're disagreeing with. It'll help us to love each other with a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Remember what that is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So especially when we have disagreements, let's think what is best about each other. Let's remember that we're all seeking to honor Christ and to thank God in all we do. And the second thing we can take from verse six is the reminder to honor Christ and give thanks to God in all we do. Honor Christ and thank God in all you do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In whatever we do, we're to do what we do for God, not ourselves. 
Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever we do, we're to do what we do in the name of Christ, giving thanks to the Father. Conversely, we shouldn't do what we used to do before we were converted, as described in, say, Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Before, we did not honor God or give thanks to God in anything. Now, we want to honor God and give thanks to God in everything as believers. So try to keep this on your radar screen each day. Don't let it drift away from your field of view. Seek to honor Christ and thank God in all you do. And if you can't honor Christ and you can't thank God for something you're doing, that's a good sign you probably shouldn't be doing whatever you're doing. That's a good test. Seek to honor the Lord and to give thanks to God in all you do. Well, in the last part of our passage, Paul expands on what that means, what it means to honor the Lord and give thanks to God. Let's look at that now under our third main point, living and dying to the Lord. Verse seven. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. That is, as believers, this is what is fundamentally true of us. Not perfectly, of course, but in terms of the overall direction of our lives. We don't live to or for ourselves anymore. And we don't die to or for ourselves. What do we do instead? Verse 8 tells us For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So notice verse 7 says, We don't live or die to ourselves. Verse eight says, we live and die to the Lord. We live to the Lord, at least we seek to. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We seek to live to the Lord. And we die to the Lord. We desire to die in a way that honors the Lord when we come to die. Philippians 1, 20 and 21, as it is my eager expectation, Paul said, and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So then, Paul says at the end of verse eight, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are not our own. We are the Lord's. That's why we live and die, not for ourselves, but for him. Because we are his. Because we're already his. We don't live and die for the Lord so that we can make the team, so that we can get picked We do it because we're already on the team. 
He's already chosen us by his grace. He's already purchased us with his blood. He bought us, so he owns us. And therefore, we live and die for him. Remember again, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. We belong to Jesus, we sang earlier. We are the Lord's, and we are the Lord's because he died and rose again for us. Look at verse nine. For to this end, Christ died and lived again or rose again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living that is, of believers who have died and believers who are still alive. It's not that he wasn't already the Lord of the dead and of the living in a sense, but he wasn't the Lord of the dead and of the living as the crucified and risen Redeemer yet, not until he finished his work of redemption. But now, now that he's finished that work, he is Lord both of the dead and of the living because he himself died and lived again. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Three things by way of application here as we draw to a close this morning. First, Christ really did die and rise again. He really did. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The reality, the realness of Christ's death on the cross and bodily resurrection means there's hope for sinners who need a savior. There's hope for sinners who need a savior. And perhaps that's you this morning. Is that you? Christ's death is sufficient to cover all your sins. Christ's resurrection is sufficient to free you from eternal death and to give you eternal life. And if you repent of your sin and believe in him, you will be saved from sin and will go to heaven when you die. Put your trust in Jesus and talk to someone before you leave today if you have questions. The reality, the realness of Christ's death and resurrection means also that there's hope for us who've already been saved. There's hope in the midst of the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's hope in the midst of all the discouragements and trials and troubles that we face in our lives in this fallen world. Because Christ died, we are dead to sin. It is no longer ruling and reigning over us. It no longer has power over us like it once did. And because Christ rose again, 
We are alive in him. We are spiritually alive. We have a new life now that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we will be raised bodily and permanently when Christ returns. And that can give us hope each new day until that day comes. So Christ really did die and rise again. Second thing I want to say is when you come to die, die to the Lord. Die well. Die trusting in Christ. Die leaning on the everlasting arms. Let the way you die honor Christ and commend the gospel to others. Let your death be your last evangelism. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and let the blood of the martyrs flow in your veins. And whether your own death is extraordinary or ordinary, die to the Lord. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote in his excellent book, An Ark for All God's Noahs, a man that knows that God is his portion knows that death shall be the funeral of all his sins, sorrows, afflictions, temptations, desertions, oppositions, vexations, oppressions, and persecutions. His death will be the funeral of all those things. And he knows that death shall be the resurrection of his hopes, joys, delights, comforts, and contentments. And that it shall bring him to a more clear, full, perfect, and constant enjoyment of God. And this makes him sweetly and triumphantly to sing it out. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Death will be the funeral of all our sins and sorrows and the resurrection of all our hopes and joys. So when you come to die, die well. When a runner runs a marathon, when he comes to the final mile of the marathon, he's already run 25 miles. He's completely exhausted. But he doesn't give up. Why? Because he's almost there, of course. He's only got one more mile, so he endures to the end. He tries to finish well. When we come near death, we're at the final mile of our race. And we shouldn't give up right at the end. We should keep going all the way through the finish line. We should keep trusting the Lord, living for him up to the moment of our death. And then we will have lived and died to the Lord. In the hour of death, remember that you belong to Jesus, that you are his and he is yours, that he is your portion and finish the race well. Third and finally, in whatever you do, live for the Lord who lived and died and rose again for you. Don't live for yourself. 
Don't live for yourself, live for Christ. Ask yourself at the beginning of each new day, who am I gonna live for today? Who's it gonna be? Who am I gonna live for today? And make your answer him, not you. Christ, not self. Fulfill your chief end, which is not to glorify yourself and enjoy yourself forever. It's to glorify and enjoy God forever. Live under the lordship of Christ, not under the lordship of your flesh or the world or the devil. Bring everything under the lordship of Christ. All you are and all you have, like we sang together earlier. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul reminded these Christians in Rome, and he reminds us this morning that we're all seeking to honor Christ and to give thanks to God as believers and to live for Christ and not for ourselves. And that can help us in our disagreements. That can help us to be more charitable toward each other. But it can also help us to remember why we exist, why we're here. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for God, for the glory of God. We are the Lord's, we're not our own. And so our mission in life, whatever our age, whatever our stage in life or station in life, Our mission is to live and die for Christ. He is our Lord. His life, his death, his resurrection is our only hope of eternal life. And because he lived and died and rose again for us, because of that, we have everything we need in him to live for him and to die for him when we come to the end of our race. So by his grace, live and die for him who lived and died and rose again for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for living and dying and rising again for us. That is our only hope of salvation and eternal life. And it's our only hope also of being able to live for you and die for you in this life. So we thank you that you really did live and die and rise again for us. Help us to take in all we've heard and to digest it and to be nourished and strengthened by it as we seek to live our lives not for ourselves but for you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.